Good morning. Again, I'm going to come this way a little bit. I feel like there's an old ping commercial that said I got a case of the rights. So I'm going to come left a little bit, center up. I'm not trying to get in the way of the table, so hope this theologically doesn't mess with you. Uh, my name is Brent Corbin, as Ryan mentioned, and um, I'm an unfortunate graduate of the University of Oklahoma on this morning, but I'm adaptable. Uh, coming here to Stillwater, love me some pokes these days, um, so I'm glad to be here. I've been doing RUF for six years at the University of Tulsa. My wife, Sarah, we have three little girls, uh, six, four, and two, so pray for us. Uh, it is uh, hard and wonderful, if you know anything about kids. Uh, let me pray for us before we get going this morning, uh, looking at Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we pray that you would uh, do that work that only you can do, and that's opening uh, the eyes of people who otherwise are blind. And that is opening the ears and unstopping the ears of people who uh, simply cannot hear your truth unless you come and unstop our ears. So please do that. Lord, this morning, uh, I'm sure there are people in here who are hurting uh, from living in a broken world and who ourselves contribute to that brokenness. I pray that you would come and that your gospel would be good news. I pray for those in here this morning who are uh, high on themselves. And they find their righteousness in their own doing. I pray that you would come and humble them so that you may transform them to be people who are used by you and who themselves become bearers of the good news as we move out into the world. Lord, I pray for those of us in here who, who might not even know what this is all about. Maybe we got dragged here with a friend or we came in uh, randomly. We felt the need to be in church. I pray that you would meet us here in a very powerful way and teach us about your love uh, for wayward people. Lord, I finally, I pray for me, I pray that you would help me to hide behind your word. You know, the temptation is always there for me to be seen as great. And so I pray that you would humble me even now. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, several years ago, I took a group of college students to Chicago to work with the ministry there over spring break. The name of the ministry was Sunshine Gospel Ministries. It's this fantastic a uh, parachurch organization that exists in the south side of Chicago in the Woodlawn area. If you know anything about Chicago, uh, your mind is flashing right now because that is not the best part of Chicago. Uh, if you hear on the news of mass shootings in Chicago and kind of lots of violence, oftentimes it's in that neighborhood, the Woodlawn neighborhood. It's a very depressed kind of economic and, and certainly social uh, part of the city. Uh, but there's a lot of really beautiful and redemptive things going on in that part of the city. The church has entered in and is uh, seeking to, to do all that they can to bring uh, the joy and hope of the gospel to bear there. And so Sunshine Gospel is right in the middle of that. And when we take the students uh, there, during the day you get sent out on work projects and, and helping in schools and doing some construction, typical mission trip type stuff. And at night you come back to a, a gymnasium much like this, and the, the staff of Sunshine Gospel they teach you and they educate uh, the students and whoever's there about the nature of inner city ministry and all the complexities of poverty and of, of brokenness and family stuff. And I mean, it is, there's a lot there. And for a lot of students, and, and even for myself, who didn't necessarily grow up in that environment or come from that sort of situation, to hear that sort of stuff is just mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. It's wonderful. And, and really, uh, the Lord uses it in a great way in the lives of students and, and, and the pastors, too. Well, uh, one of those nights, we were standing, and there's always some worship music that goes on with that, and students come together and worship, and uh, I was standing at the back of the room with a few other
other campus ministers. And the, the students were singing and leading us in a song uh, called, Oh, How He Loves Us. Maybe you know that song. Uh, David Crowder Band did it. I think another guy wrote it. But anyway, they, David Crowder Band made it popular. And the chorus of it goes like this. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh. And it's a great chorus. But there's a part of that song that is, it just bothered me uh, because I'm a prideful pastor. And it goes like this. The song is supposed to say that heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss. And it's talking about the incarnation. And Jesus comes in this very unforeseen, unexpected way. But then you get the rebellious college students who, who sing, heaven meets earth like a sloppy, wet kiss. And it's just like, so I was sitting back there with these pastors, and, and I'm kind of nudging them. It's like, you know, that's so stupid. Why didn't they say the other thing? You know, being stodgy and, and things that pastors do. And um, So I was bothered by it, and I shouldn't have been, but I was. And it really, for the next few days, I just couldn't get out of my mind. So dumb. And on the way home, I was overwhelmed with that song, that dumb song that only a few days earlier I had been so pridefully dismissing. And I was overwhelmed by that song because of that chorus, and it was so simple. It just kept saying, oh, how he loves us, oh, how he loves us, oh, how he loves us, oh. And so I went and downloaded it on my phone, and I listened to it. This is not an exaggeration. I listened to it for two hours on repeat, and it just got beat into my mind. And I found myself, I'm driving this 15-passenger van, and I found myself crying while I'm driving because this very simple truth, that God really does love me, that he really is for me. And look, I don't know where you come from kind of theologically and what your story has been uh, in, in your journey to get here this morning, but I grew up in the church, and I went to seminary, and I've been a pastor at that point for four years, and somehow in the mix of all of that, I had forgotten this very basic, simple truth that the Lord of the universe loves me. And that moved me very, very, very deeply on that trip. And friends, when we come to this passage this morning, there is a very simple truth at work in this passage. And it's a parable, and if you know anything about parables, they're very simple on one level, but then they have this, this doubly complex meaning to them, and they get deeper and deeper as you get into them. But all of that is meant to show us very simple truth, and the simple truth this morning is this that the Lord of the universe delights in you. And he doesn't just delight to save you, he delights to restore you and to remake you into the person that he created you to be. And so if you would, I'm going to ask you to stand uh, with me as I read this passage from Luke 15. It's just seven verses. Luke 15, 1 through 7, this is the word of the Lord. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the hymn here is Jesus. And I actually could just stop there, and we could preach a whole sermon about that. The bad people were flocking to Jesus. There's something compelling about him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. We could also preach a sermon about that. Saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them, everyone there, this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, 
Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as I mentioned, there's very simple truths at work here, and so I'm going to try to make the outline very simple for you. First, I want to talk about the shepherd and his job. The shepherd is a person and the shepherd and his job. And then secondly, we're going to look at the shepherd and his joy. The shepherd and his job and the shepherd and his joy. Let's talk about the shepherd and his job. When Jesus uh, gathers this group, or when this group is gathered around him, and he starts to tell them this parable, and when the moment he opens his mouth and says, which one of you, when, when tending the sheep, the moment he does that, for the Pharisees and the scribes who are sitting there, their alarms, and their, they start going off, and their minds start going crazy, and here's why. Uh, Pharisees and scribes were, there, there were many things, but you could easily say they were the religious elite of the day. They spent their whole lives and their, their careers for the scribes, they dedicated themselves to the study of the Jewish law of the Old Testament, and they were proficient in it. They were the good people. These were people that if you and I saw them walking around Stillwater or Tulsa, we would say, Man, that, they're the good people. They're, they're the good ones. They're doing things right. They're living rightly. And so Jesus, when he talks to them and says, uh, which one of you being a shepherd, this gets confusing for them, and this is why. That on one hand, uh, for, for people who knew the Old Testament, the, the idea of a shepherd was a very highly exalted term. Moses himself, in some ways the great leader of Israel, calls himself the shepherd of Israel. And he, he says that about himself because he leads them throughout their wanderings in the desert after they come out of Egypt. And so Moses, their great deliverer, was a shepherd. Then you have King David, who was the shepherd of Israel. He was the king and he was a shepherd. Ezekiel, uh, the prophet Ezekiel says that all kings of Israel are shepherds. And in Psalm 23, obviously, is this, this uh, psalm about God being the shepherd who leads his sheep beside still waters and who restores their soul. And so for those who knew the Old Testament, the word shepherd has this very high and exalted uh, meaning for them. But it's, com it, it's complicated. Because a shepherd is also in that first century society, even further back than that, a shepherd was someone who did a very common task. They were out taking care of the sheep. And so there's this idealized view of a shepherd, but there's also the real view of a shepherd. They got dirty. It was a very common job. They would have to handle the sheep and, and lots of sheeply things. And so they would, they would become ceremonially and ritually unclean at times. And so you had the Pharisees and the scribes, who we might call the upper caste of that society, and then you had the shepherds and the common folk who were down here, the lower caste. And that separation is precisely what the, shepherd, or what the Pharisees and scribes would have felt when Jesus invites them into this story, and that's precisely what he does. There's this huge tension involved, and Jesus shocks their sensitivities when he says, which one of you being a shepherd? Which one of you when you uh, have the hundred sheep. So they're already feeling uncomfortable. It's like, it would be like if someone tells you, hey, you're not as ugly as you used to be. You're like, ah, is that, 
is that good or not good? <laughs> Thanks. Um, it's that, that middle ground right there, and they're feeling that. Which one of you having a hundred sheep? This is an indirect and yet very powerful attack on the Pharisees and the scribes who they really prided themselves on these nice little neat categories of, okay, here's the good people who are following the law and doing all the right things, and then there's the people who aren't kind of down here. They loved that separation, and they kind of existed in many ways to let people know that there was a separation there. If you know anything about how Jesus deals with the scribes and Pharisees, he comes and drops the hammer on them. Because what he's saying is, you guys don't get it. In Matthew, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He's saying, you look so good on the outside, but on the inside you are dead and, and perishing. You are a tomb, even though you look so put together. Jesus simply is coming and attacking their classism. Their very idea that they thought they were something and they could easily look out at others, others and say, you are nothing. Jesus comes to that. But it actually gets worse for the Pharisees. Not only does Jesus say they're shepherds, he actually says you are bad shepherds. Look down in the passage. Which one of you having a hundred sheep when he loses one? It's like, oh my gosh, now the Pharisees, not only are they shepherds, they can't even keep up with their sheep. Something that the low people could do, he's saying you can't even do this. You are failing at this very menial, simple task, Pharisees. And so they're getting more and more uncomfortable. He's coming right at them and saying, you aren't who you think you are. Not only are you not kind of privileged and up here as you want to think, look, you're not even good at being down here. He's exploding their categories. Now this is very curious because Jesus himself says that he's the good shepherd, right? You guys know this in John 10. Jesus comes and is talking to his disciples and others and says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And he goes on to say that I came for my sheep and my sheep hear my voice and I will lose none of those whom the Father gives me. And so Jesus puts himself right into the story later on. He's saying, look, it's okay to be a shepherd. In fact, I'm the best shepherd. But Pharisees, you have lost the sheep around you. You don't know what you're doing. Things aren't working the way you want them to work. They're not quite as nice and tidy and easy as you want to think they are. So that's what a shepherd is. What's the job of a shepherd? Well, very simply and plainly, and this feels intimidating being in Stillwater where some of you probably major in sheep, but um, shepherds take care of sheep, right? Uh, <laughs> You take them out to the pastures, you let them graze for a while, uh, you take them by the water, they drink, I'm leaving my area of expertise, and you bring them back home in the evening. That's the existence of a shepherd. They have failed. What's going on? You've lost this one sheep. What's this shepherd going to do? The parable takes a turn here because you would think that the job of a shepherd, you know, if he loses a sheep, he's, he's just got to go out and find it. That's what shepherds do. It's dutiful. I have to go find this sheep and bring him back and restore it, and that's just what you do. It's like clocking in at work. I've got a problem, solve the problem, things are back to normal, life is good. That's why it's so shocking to see what Jesus says right here. Look down further with me. Kenneth Bailey, let me tell you this first. Kenneth Bailey, who's a seminary professor in the Middle East, 
who spent a lot of time around very common folks in the Middle East, shepherds and, and people just out in villages, he walked up to them and said, help me understand this parable. And they said, oh, here's what's going on. That when sheep leave, when sheep leave the, uh, the, the rest of them, the herd, they go out and they lie down and they don't say anything and they don't move. So um, they're dumb. They don't even know to cry out, probably because they don't want to be attacked by coyotes or whatever else is out there. So they go out into the, uh, the, the desert or wherever they are. They lie down. They hide maybe behind a rock or something, and they do nothing. And so the job of the shepherd then is he leaves the, the greater flock and goes out and is on this blind search for this sheep that isn't going to give him any hints where it is. This isn't like losing a dog and going to the stop sign and, you know, parking your car and, come here, just listen for those little chains to come and, and run up to you and you grab your dog and kiss it and all that gross stuff. But um, that's not what's happening. The shepherd has to go out and the pursuit is all on the shepherd's hands. He has to go out and find it. He has to, he has to uh, bring the sheep back. And here's where Bailey says, here's what's just amazing about this, is that I, I tend to think of sheep as the like sheep that you see at the fair that are small little lambs and stuff like that. But he says that a female uh, ewe lamb can be anywhere from 90 to 150 pounds, and a male sheep can be from 150 to 400 pounds. Huge animal. So imagine this. Go out, find the animal. They don't just follow you back. They're dumb. You have to put the sheep on your shoulders, which is exactly what we see happening in the passage, and take the sheep back and restore it to the flock. That would not be fun. No one in here would want sheep belly on your hot and sweaty neck. That would be disgusting. Let's just let that sit for a while. Um, look at what it says about this shepherd. That he finds this sheep, and when he finds it, lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. He's rejoicing. He found this sheep. He gets the opportunity to restore this sheep back to the flock. And in fact, that's exactly what it goes on to say, that when he comes home, he invites his friends and the family, and they rejoice because this one sheep was lost, and now it's found. Come and rejoice with me. Now, when I said that this uh, parable has a very simple truth to it, here's what most of us think that it is, is that Jesus, as the good shepherd, left all of the comforts of heaven left the, the pleasures and the riches of being with God in this perfect community and everything that heaven is and everything that heaven will be one day when the kingdom comes, that Jesus leaves that willingly for his people to come and get not just one sheep, but his church, the whole, the whole bride of sheep. And that is absolutely true. And to believe that, that Jesus did that for you, makes you a Christian. And that's necessary that we see that Jesus came and, and left everything for me in my own stubbornness, in my not coming to him, but in my laying down and doing nothing. In the deadness of my sin, Jesus comes to me and says, I love you, come, I'll take you. And that's wonderful. So friends, I think there's an even greater, more beautiful truth in this. And that it is that when Jesus finds you, he doesn't say, ugh, I'm going to deal with all of her 
body image issues now. Ugh, I've got to go deal with all of his addictions now. Uh, I've got to go deal with her bad parenting. I've got to go deal with all of his daddy issues. I've got to, uh, it's going to be so hard from now on. Friends, I want you to see in this passage that when Jesus comes and finds you and rescues you as the sheep who has gone astray, he comes and he comes right to you and he is rejoicing knowing that the burden of restoring you back to the person that you were intended to be and that God created you to be causes him to rejoice. That he doesn't think of your life of restoration and sanctification as a burden that he has to bear. Do you realize that? We often think that, that God loves us kind of because he has to, and he sent Jesus, and that's part of the deal, that he has to love us because we believe in Jesus, and he's just obligated to. God loves and delights in the restoring process of all of your mess. He loves when you, when you have been addicted to porn and you have been doing it every single day. He loves when that becomes every other day. And then it becomes every other week and then it becomes every other month. He loves that. Do you know that when you look at yourself and you don't see yourself rightly and you, you wallow about in shame and self-pity and you just feel like nothing about you is good or right at all, do you realize that Jesus knew what he was getting. He knew that he had to come find you, and he, when he finds you, he rejoices at the prospect of even what is ahead for him and all of its mess. There's a great song that says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, all that he did for us, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Friends, this is what it means for the gospel to wash over you that when you realize that God is not, he is not tolerating you, but when you realize that God loves you and that you give him great delight and joy like the best father you can imagine who loves his children with that pure, perfect love, when that begins to sink into your heart, you're changed. The sheep, when it's found, it's brought back into the, shep into the fold and his life is restored he is brought back to sanity and to where joy is found. Friends, God loves you. He is for you. And he has, he has sent his son to bring you back. And he is not just tolerating you. Jesus says that he did this willingly. Shane talked about it as he was up here. That for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He willingly left the comforts of heaven for us. And he willingly is patient with us in restoring us back to sanity as he brings us to the flock. Now, I wonder if there's any of you here this morning who wouldn't want that to be true of you. That when you think of, of your relationship to God, and whether that is someone who trusts in Jesus and therefore has been restored to God, or whether you haven't yet and you're on the outside and you're considering what all this looks like, I wonder if the reason that maybe you haven't is because you think of your life and all of the baggage that you have and, and how you're not together and you, you really don't have this perfect little pretty thing to bring God. I wonder if you heard him say, I will take you as you are, where you are, and I will love you in that place, and I will delight in you, and you will cause me great joy, and then I will take you somewhere. Would that change the way that you approach him? And for those of you who are known and loved by God, 
I wonder if this would change the way that you think about dealing with your own sin. Because I would suggest this, as long as you think that God is like a, a boss who's just tapping the clipboard and looking at all the boxes you haven't checked or the things you haven't done, as long as you see God like that in your life as a Christian, you will forever be hesitant because you will be afraid to fail him, and so you live in hiding. You let your shame dominate you and keep you from even trying new things. But what if God wasn't a boss who's with the, with the clipboard? What if he was a father with his arms outstretched? Wouldn't that move you toward the ability to take some risks for him and to even confess those parts of your lives that, are, that aren't put together and that may be very embarrassing and maybe very ugly? What if you thought that even in the process of confessing sin that God delighted in you? And then it brought him joy to know that that's part of the restoring process. Does God love our sin? No, he hates it. But he's already punished it, punished it in Jesus. He has no anger left toward you. He's inviting you to him to restore you and to give you the life that you dream of. It's the joy of the Father which he offers to us. Let me close uh, with this illustration. I was last fall... Uh, kind of consumed with all that was happening in Africa, mainly West Africa, with the Ebola virus. I thought Ebola was just a thing that was on the movie Outbreak, but apparently it's real. And um, in West Africa last year, whole villages were contracting this virus, and people were uh, taking it by the tens and by the hundreds and dying. And I was uh, going to school one morning with our oldest daughter, and I was listening to NPR, and they were telling a story about a man uh, by the name of Dr. Sheikh Umar Khan. Probably mispronounced that. Uh, but Dr. Khan was the top doctor in Sierra Leone, which is a country in West Africa. And Sierra Leone was at the epicenter of this outbreak. And his normal kind of day-to-day -day, uh, responsibilities as a doctor, and top doctor wasn't like a name he gave himself. He was nationally recognized as the man. And the normal stuff he did on any given day was very dangerous. A lot of very uh, harmful bacteria and diseases that he dealt with. But Ebola was by far the worst. And so what he did is he left the comforts of his normal job at this hospital, and he went into the front lines to do battle against Ebola, to try and enter in and figure out exactly what was going on and why it had been so deadly and spreading so far. And what he found was that as he entered the villages, the main thing that caused this disease to spread is that whenever someone would contract the virus and die, the families and, and the society and the culture, they didn't have sanitary burial practices, what we would call sanitary burial practices. They had a lot of um, mystical kind of spiritual things, and so they would go and handle this dead, infected body, and they would do lots of things with it, so everyone who handled it would get the disease. And so he came right into that, and he said, you guys are doing it wrong. We can't keep doing this. This is going to wipe out your entire population. And in the process of doing that, he himself contracted the virus. And it moved very quickly, and after seven days, he died. And as the reporter was telling this story on NPR, what she said was that it was at that moment that the whole tide of Ebola began to change in Sierra Leone. Because what the people realized is that if the top doctor if he could come down and enter in, if he could contract this and even die himself, then this must be serious. And it was at that moment 
that the people began to change and they began to realize that he knows what he's talking about and so we have to begin to, to alter our burial practices. We, we begin to have to live differently in light of what he has done for us. Friends, that is the story of the gospel. That is what Jesus is trying to see in this parable is that he is the one who gave everything, the comforts of heaven, and entered in. And that yes, it was an entering in that he contracted what all of us have but he knew he was going to get it. And he did that for you for the joy set before him. Think about what that doc, what it cost him. The Ebola virus was very painful. It, it was flesh-eating. It, it really just destroyed you and your humanity. And it was nothing compared to what sin did to Jesus. It destroyed him from the inside out to the point where he's on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, Jesus took on everything that, that leads you out to be lost. He took everything on himself so that he would be the one who has to say, God, where are you? Why have you left me? So that you might hear the voice of the Father saying, come to me. I love you. Let me restore you to your sanity and to your right living. But that day, the people in Sierra Leone, they began to change. Friends, might this be the day when you realize the Father's love and delight for you and over you? And might this be the day that you begin to change and live differently, knowing that God left everything for you? And might you know that He delights in even entering into the crevices of your life that you have so longed to keep hidden? Might you leave this place different and changed and freed up to go and live for Him and live for others in spite of who you are. All because of who he is. It says, offered for you in Jesus. A life of joy, a life of love from the Father, and a life of, uh, of living for the good of the people around you, for the glory of God.